You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. This week, we're joined by Dr. Annette Estes, the director of the University of Washington Autism Center and a licensed psychologist in the state of Washington. Dr. Estes is committed to clinical service, research, and training to improve the lives of individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families across the lifespan. Today, we'll be discussing sleep in autism and NIH-funded research studying sleep, possible sex differences in sleep, and caregiver strategies to support sleep in autistic children. Dr. Estes is the principal investigator on two intervention studies for very young children with early signs of autism. She's also co-principal investigator with Dr. Stephen Dager of the University of Washington, site of the Infant Brain Imaging Study Network. Annette, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Well, it's, it's my pleasure to have this conversation because I don't know that everybody puts into context how much sleep affects functioning, behaviors, communication, daily living, and just the whole gamut of our lives. But before we go down that road, I'd love to hear your experience and what, what drove you to studying sleep and more specifically, the field of autism and sleep and where that connection comes in. That's so great uh, that you asked that because, you know, I started off not doing sleep research, just really focusing in on autism and and strategies for supporting, you know, optimal development in autism, especially for young kids. And one of the things that we learned from doing a lot of this research and clinical work was that sleep was one of the major barriers for kids and families really participating and um, being able to to learn in these, you know, in these interventions that we worked so hard over the last 40 years to develop. So, you know, sleep just started to tell me really that I, I needed to pay attention to it. And as I started looking into it, I realized that it's a huge problem that it affects over 80%, in some studies, 90% of autistic kids. And that's two to three times more than you'd expect for that, for those age groups. So, you know, sleep and autism is just critical to address. Absolutely. And interestingly enough, when we're talking about interdisciplinary care, it's sometimes neglected to, to really vet out how somebody's sleep cycle or lack of sleep or even getting too much sleep and what that could mean within somebody's sleep diet, what that could be doing. Um, just right now, and we were talking prior to, it's like, I am feeling the effects of not getting sleep right now. And it's, it's due to air quality and stuff like that, environmental reasons. But I can feel that, you know, I'm in a little bit of a brain fog. I'm feeling more fatigue. Emotionally, it's ups and downs. Why is it that sleep is so important from your viewpoint when you're looking at autistic children or, or just the population at large? Yeah, you really hit on some important points because, you know, sleep plays a role in almost every part of health and development. It is, um, you know, it can affect 
mood, it can affect learning and cognition, it can affect behavior, it affects basic things uh, in health like cardiac function and weight gain and immune in you know your immune system. So sleep is just critical to underlying so many things, and when it's disrupted, um, it's it's you know like you're saying you can really feel that. Yeah, and it's and it's not the the feeling that makes you feel whole. Like I mean, you go through that experience and you're feeling like I'm I'm less than what I feel like I'm capable of. Um, mm-hmm. But as as we talk through this, and maybe it's better if we get just kind of the general framework of you know what are I guess typical sleep patterns. What would you be looking in your utopic world of? You know, if I could really sleep this way every day, that's kind of what it would be perfect. And what are you seeing as some of the trends within the autistic community that might differ from that? Right. Well, okay. So, you know, I think that as a new parent myself, I did not understand the basics of sleep. Like, what was I even aiming for? So your question is just vital to all of all of the the interventions that we're doing to help people sleep and also just so that parents kind of have a a north star if you will something that they're aiming for so you know a lot of parents are really surprised by how much sleep their kids really need for healthy development and um, my go-to is this cdc recommendation for the number of hours of sleep needed by age and um, there's you know really different dramatically changing sleep needs over the first years of life. So um, parents are kind of usually just like on a sort of like treadmill trying to catch up to their kids changing sleep needs for the first couple of years. But um, that's so that's the first thing is knowing how much sleep does your kid need in a 24 hour period given their age. That's one of your North Stars. But then the next thing is like these little components that break that that actually support getting that much sleep. And again, like as a new parent, I didn't know any of this. Nobody told me this. So vital. So some of the things that I um, always want parents to know are these six sort of characteristics that they're looking for. Um, one of them is being able to fall asleep relatively quickly. And the word relatively is important here because it doesn't mean like falling asleep in your soup, like that's too quickly, right? You need to be, but you need to, when it's bedtime, um, within 20 minutes, be asleep. That's that's one of the North Stars. The other thing is falling asleep at a regular time. And I can talk more about why that's important, but basically this is a physiological habit that kind of gets you on a positive loop with sleep if you can be at a regular time there's getting enough sleep Um, part of that is being able to stay asleep through the night or and i should add a little tidbit to that is that all of us wake up a number of times each night but when you're in a healthy sleep cycle you don't even remember it in the morning because you just naturally go to sleep like within 30 seconds, a minute. And you, when you wake up, you think I've slept all night long without waking up. Really, it's this going back to sleep easily without help. Huge thing that parents need to help their kids learn how to do. Um, and the other signs are being able to get up in the morning without trouble. Probably something that you felt this morning when you didn't sleep very well, 
was like, oh my gosh, I want to stay in bed. So after, you know, when you're on a healthy sleep cycle, you should sort of be waking up pretty rested and then not being super drowsy during the day. So if all of those different aspects are in place, then you're on the right track. You have healthy sleep. And there's got to be some global strategies. But when I hear each of these six, it sounds like there's some intervention or treatment that might differ depending on where you're at. But to better understand that, I mean, obviously you have to assess the sleep cycle, right? So what what would a parent be doing if they're like, you know, I don't know that my child is sleeping well throughout the day. I'd love to get this checked out. What is that? What does that even look like? I, what's the, the feeling yeah. of saying I'm getting a sleep study done? Well, there's two different kinds of sleep studies. In our, um, in our center, what we do is um, assess the behavioral naturalistic sleep in the home. So we have parents, um, there's questionnaires that kind of get a comprehensive view. There's, you know, talking to parents of, of kids. But then there's also some things that we can do that are a little more um, they're, they're kind of interesting. One is called actigraphy. So it's like a little wristwatch that kids can wear that um, tracks motion. And when you get that wristwatch back, we download the data and you can see the activity patterns during the day and night. And you can tell when the kids are sleeping, when they're waking up, including night wakings, how long it takes them to fall asleep, a lot of really good information. And, and we pair that with a sleep diary. So we send online morning and evening really quick questionnaires to parents so that they can remember better the real details over a 10 day two week period. And once we get that, we can really see the patterns that are going on in the home um, a lot more clearly. Because especially with kids, parents are usually just as sleep deprived as their kids are. And so, you know, it can be hard to know what the details are of, of, of sleep that, that, you know, we kind of need to know. And then I want to, there's another kind of sleep study that people do that are more medically based where you go into a lab, you um, get hooked up with all these different sensors and, you know, the kid tries to sleep um, there during the night. And that is a way to understand more medically based sleep problems like sleep apnea, you know, trouble breathing at night, that kind of thing. Um, really hard for autistic kids to do, really hard for a lot of people to do, but um, very valuable um, to be able to really understand certain types of uh, medically based sleep problems. Yeah, I love the fact that you offer both options. I had uh, participated in a, in a study where I had gone and, they, they actually invited the parent to be there with their child during the study. I, and I would imagine for the comfort and also just to kind of create a, a less stressful situation. But I think that just being there was probably more stressful than I could deal with at the time, just because you're in an uncomfortable environment. But we walked away with so much information from that, that it's if you do need that medical piece, it's definitely worthwhile. Um, yeah. When we're, before we get into some of the behavioral issues that uh, that might be contributing to um, to poor sleep habits or the inability to fall back asleep, what are some of the medical components? Because it has to be one of these interdisciplinary models where there's collaboration between a medical team and a behavioral team. What are some of the most common medical reasons that 
might contribute to poor sleep? I mean, on, on the grounds of maybe diet or stress or, I mean, what contributes? Such a good question because sleep, you can't really, it's so intertwined, just like you were saying. Like, let's say an older autistic child might have anxiety um, that interferes with their sleep. And that can be, that certainly has a physiological component to it. Um, as well as a psychological, behavioral, you know, everything is just so combined. And, um, you know, at the UW Autism Center, we actually don't have the medical piece. We collaborate with um, our sleep medicine colleagues in the community, because what we find is that addressing the behavioral aspects is something that has to happen no matter what. So it's, you know, no matter whether you have a medically based sleep problem or not, you still need those, those basic sleep hygiene and sleep behavioral um, approaches. And especially in autism, I think um, we maybe underestimate the effects of kind of good old fashioned sleep behavioral interventions. And they can really, that can help dramatically um, improve sleep. There are kids where that doesn't happen, where those, you know, those parents are doing everything and it's been in place for weeks and weeks and the kids just are still having a really hard time. Um, some of these problems are hard to put your finger on in autism. I, I would say there's a lot of research that's still needed because, um, you know, it's not, you know, sleep apnea can happen for kids that are autistic, just like everybody else. Um, that's one of the things there can be. Um, sleep disorders that have more to do with sleep stages, like REM sleep, that kind of thing. Um, those are, and, you know, restless leg syndrome. Sometimes kids really benefit from having iron supplementation. This is only something you would do with, with the doctor overseeing it. But, you know, some of these kinds of things um, really can help um, kids that are autistic. But I would say the vast majority of autistic kids that we see have insufficient sleep because of sort of a, a non-specific, not, I mean, maybe there's a medical biological component to it, but we don't really know what it is with our current um, sort of science, the state of the science. So what we do know is, you know, we want to work with doctors at that point with for medicine um, that can help, but we, you know, it's, there's still so much to learn. No, absolutely, and and it, the the crux of it is is typically behavioral, and and it, it must be because even even if I were to look at myself, and I watch when I'm having poor sleep, I can typically control for it. So I mean, if you can solve for eighty percent of what's going on with some form of behavioral or modifying the environment or just changing the way that you're approaching things, that's probably got to be the gold standard of where to start. So I'd love to talk through some of these strategies with you um, and kind of hit on those six kind of core mm -hmm. areas as we talk through it, because there's there's specific things I would imagine that align perfectly for some of these techniques. But when you're talking initially about being able to fall asleep quickly and you're saying that, you know, that's that's kind of the, one of the more important things is can you get to sleep? What are some of the things that families or um, if, if I'm working on it as, a, as an adult or even adolescents, like what are some things that we can do just to be able to prepare ourselves for that? 
Such a great question. Yeah. So, you know, other than having the right amount of opportunity to sleep, the next most important thing is, yeah, getting ready for bed. So a couple of the things. So one of the low hanging fruit type things is is making sure that the bedroom is quiet and dark. And then within the recommended range of temperature, and we've done some research now that shows a really surprising thing. People understand the dark and quiet thing for the most part that that's, um, kids' rooms are pretty dark, are very dark, pretty quiet, um, but people have their kids' rooms way too hot. I think a lot of people feel like, oh, my kid's gonna get cold and, but, the, the normal, the, the recommended range is between 60 and 67 degrees. And that's a lot cooler than most people's rooms are. So that's one thing. It's easier to go to sleep in a cool room. Um, the next thing is to establish a routine that really helps kids wind down at night. And these routines, there is a balancing act here, just like with the falling asleep. You don't want it too long. But you, you want to, and, and, and because sometimes these routines, especially with autistic kids, can get drawn out into these long, elaborate things that have to happen in the same way, the same order every night. You don't want to get into that. But you do want to have, you know, about a half an hour before you're going to go into bed where you do generally the same things in the same order to get the body. And these are relaxing things. Um, and here's one of the hardest parts. Um, is they shouldn't, it shouldn't involve screens, if at all possible, because having screen time, you know, first of all, if you're watching, doing video games or watching things, a lot of times that's really uh, not relaxing. It can be very um, almost stressful even sometimes, depending on what you're watching. But also the light from screens can really um, suppress the release of something that is a, a chemical that's needed called melatonin in order to fall asleep. So you want to do relaxing things, take a bath, read a book, um, you know, maybe have a snack, um, you know, so, you know, maybe listen to some music, that kind of thing. Um, and, and then go to bed. And the ideal is to put a child in bed when they're drowsy, but not all the way asleep. And this is, one of these things that you know also can get really challenging because kids learn to fall asleep in a certain way a lot of times they want to be cuddled up with mom or dad they want to be in mom and dad's bed ideally that can be like the gold standard for the child <laughs> their yeah, goal absolutely. but um what's going to happen is whatever habit they get into of falling asleep initially, that's what they're going to need to fall back asleep during those brief awakenings at night. So you want kids to fall asleep in their own bed or wherever they're going to be for the night and do that without anyone touching, like with the exact circumstances that you want to have around them so that they can independently fall back asleep. That's really tricky. It's a goal that you're aiming for um, over time. And um, you know, they, you think about it as a physiological habit. It's not conscious. It's not something that kids think through. It's something that their bodies kind of just get used to. And then uh, after repeated attempts, uh, that, that can really allow kids to fall back asleep.
Well, I, I'm going to applaud the fact, and I'm actually going to replay parts of this, uh, especially as we talked about temperature, because my wife and I have this conversation all the time, and now I have a professional telling me I should be living in that 60 to 67 temp zone. So I, I, I appreciate that. But um, when when you're talking about some of these habits that that, they, that the children are going through before going to bed, I mean, it sounds like you're trying to at least when the child is going to sleep, creating things that are almost autonomous. It's you're creating the environment so it doesn't rely on the parent having to do everything throughout the process. And these are skills the child can learn. Um, is that something that, you know, it's worth at times consulting with an occupational therapist to learn, you know, how to be able to soothe the child or create self-soothing techniques for the child as they're trying to go through their routine. Is there benefit to this? Yes, absolutely. We feel, um, we have, we're really lucky at the Autism Center to have the interdisciplinary team of people because every child has their own set of challenges and needs. So um, sensory needs are something that, you know, our, our occupational therapist can really help us with. So if a child is, um, you know, we've had parents, for example, who've had just tremendous struggles because their children actually like to pinch them while they're going to sleep. And I mean, some really um, sort of heartbreaking stories of parents being bruised and just all these things, but that's what their kids need to fall asleep. And so taking that kind of sensory need that the child has, like squeezing, touching, whatever it is, and figuring out how to get that need met in other ways is something that an occupational therapists can help with. Um, there's also, you know, there's a variety of different kinds of creative ways that we have to think about the bedtime routine, really, to, to make sure that our autistic kids are, are getting what they need before they go to sleep. Yeah, and I mean, let's talk about the the bedtime routine. One of the biggest challenges most parents have, and I had this with my daughters, was trying to find a bedtime that fit them that also allowed me to get to bed when I needed to get to bed. Um, and you had said that, you know, you want to put the child down when they're slightly drowsy, but you're going to have a lot of disagreement from families that are saying, hold on, my child doesn't get to, he doesn't get drowsy right now till 1130 or till 10 o'clock at night or whatever it may be. And how do you start to change that time clock or can you to be able to normalize it to regular bedtimes? Because that's your right. second one, right? That's number two yeah. on our list. Right. You want a regular bedtime. Well, that can be a very tricky and individualized answer. Um, but sometimes what we have is a child, you know, let's say a child needs is school age. They need nine to 11 hours of sleep every night for optimal health. And they're not taking naps. So that all has to happen at night. And then they have to get up at, you know, 7 a.m. for school. So you have to work backwards from there. And you're thinking, well, wait, that means they have to be in bed and asleep by nine. You know, ah, that's that is not happening because my child is up till 11. No wonder they're tired. But how are we going to change this? So um, some of the things that, you know, it's a process, not going to lie. It can be really hard getting there. But 
two things, or I would say three things happen. So we've had families, um, for example, that first of all, you know, well, there's, there's different keys, I would say, to different kids. And sometimes it's the most satisfying thing when you hit on the right thing for that child and family. So I'm thinking of a kid who always protested going to bed and was just, um, you know, the parents were at their wits end. It was this long process. And we, we put into place a couple things. One thing was always waking up at the same time, no matter what, which when you're doing that is pretty rough because the kid wants to sleep later, but it's like, nope, weekend, weekday, no sleeping in. Um, and that sort of helps build up that sleep pressure for the next night that they're more tired. So it, it starts getting it, their physiology on your side. Um, the second thing that seemed to be like a really critical thing for them was making sure that they had activity during the day earlier on, not before bed, but when like going outside, getting that exposure to light and getting that physical activity in the afternoon early on was maybe the key for this particular kid. Some parents say swimming is the most amazing thing. Yeah. When my kid does swim lessons, oh my gosh. So you, there's different things for different kids, but getting outside, getting activity, and then most this particular kid, it was like the that was it. They just they just went right into the right sleep pattern for them. Um, sometimes you have to add on this um, kind of long, difficult process of starting bedtime like at 11 when they're normally going to sleep, and then doing and then you know getting them at that point, then going back 15 minute increments until they're at the right amount. And that is kind of a hassle and, and really parents can benefit from having some support for that because it's kind of painstaking, but um, you know, there's different strategies that we can use depending on the child. Yeah, and it sounds like there's a lot of organization, planning and structure around it and, and you're gonna have to play with it a little bit. But I mean, as you were describing just, and I think always, every one of these interventions might work for autistic children, but it typically works for everybody. So when you're saying getting outside, when I go skiing for a day, I'm exhausted at the end of the day. You can put me to sleep whenever you want to, and I'd probably fall asleep right on time. Same yeah. thing with water, same thing with that. So I mean, a lot of these are universal. I said, you know, what works for you might work for your child and maybe try it and take some data on it and evaluate it and see what's helpful and what's not if you don't have somebody if you don't have a team to be able to kind of navigate it with you the parent typically knows their child pretty well well yeah. we talked about the sleep onset i mean where does maintenance come in how do you how do you make sure that you know sleep maintenance is there that your child is staying asleep or when they are routinely waking up throughout the night that they can get themselves back to sleep how do you work on those skills yeah, well, again, it's amazing when it does fall into place behaviorally because um, we never know what's going to do it. Sometimes getting that right bedtime and getting enough sleep during the night ends up helping a kid sleep through the night. Like somehow that just does it. Other times you really have to work on um, a number of, of 
parts of the process. One thing that I always tell parents for middle of the night wakings is keep it brief and boring. Your interaction needs, and, and brief and boring is the key. Like we are not saying, oh, don't go in to comfort your child or anything, but just, you know, a little pat on the back, time to go back to sleep. And then, you know, just letting them um, kind of settle down will facilitate or will help things not sort of get more extended than they need to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another part of it is, um, you know, that those sleep associations. So how your kid goes to sleep initially is how they're going to fall back asleep. So think about if you're a parent who's at this point, your child really needs you to be involved with getting to bed, you're, you know, giving them a massage, you're snuggling up with them in their bed, or, you know, all the different things that can happen, that's probably what's going to make it easiest for them to go back to sleep in the middle of the night. And as a parent, you got to think, okay, is that what I want to be doing two to six times a night? Or would I rather just have them go back to sleep without me doing all of these things? And so you kind of have to hit it both ways, you know, help them do that when they initially fall asleep, so that that habit can build up for the the middle of the night wakings too. No, and I mean it sounds like all these build off each other. It's almost like you're scaffolding as you're kind of going through the process. But you get all these plug and plays in place. Mm-hmm. Is that ultimately you're creating an environment that sleep is more accessible and that the child can benefit from it. Um, I I mean, we can go on on the interventions, I think, for days because there's so many different things that can happen and it is so tailored to the individual need of the child. But I'd love to hear a little bit about what we're seeing right now, um, even in the research, is that is is there a difference? Is there a difference in uh, gender? Is there a difference in, you know, what we might be expecting from somebody who is male that is autistic versus female? I mean, are we seeing anything like that start to pop up and do do we treat it differently? Yeah, well, right now is really an interesting time with autism research with regard to sex differences, because for many, many years, probably up until the very recent um, past, people have typically focused on boys uh, because there's more boys that are autistic and um, there hasn't been that much attention to this idea of sex differences. But now people are starting to realize, you know, this is a really important area to look at in general. And I think um, we recently published a study on sex differences in sleep and autistic school-age kids. And I I don't think there's been a lot of people who've set out to look at that up until now. So this is really sort of a new area. But our colleagues at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia had this big database of sleep questionnaires uh, filled out by parents. There's 250 autistic kids and 115 typically developing kids. And we were really surprised to see that over 85% of the girls had parent reported sleep problems. And that's compared to 65% of the boys and about 40 some percent of the typically developing boys and girls in this sample. So um, that was a really big difference. And and girls also seem to show a little bit different types of sleep problems than the boys. A little more, um, you know, problems with sleep onset, different kinds of sort of insomnia type 
measures, but we're very similar on other things. So, you know, I think what this suggests is that we need to think about this when we um, are thinking about uh, autism, you know, in girls and not kind of assume, you know, I, I don't know if we've assumed anything about sleep in girls before this, but we now know that we really need to look at this and, and be really conscious of, you know, asking parents like, how is her sleep? And boys too. I mean, 65% is still a lot for boys. Mm -hmm. The other thing that was really anti-intuitive to us, because girls tend to have more anxiety than boys as, you know, autistic girls, um, but also typically developing. But in this case, what we found was that for boys, their, their anxiety tended to go along with their sleep problems more. And again, just our perception might be that boys aren't as anxious, so it's not as something you would ask about or think about, but sleep anxiety seemed to be higher in the boys too. So I think, you know, we have a lot to learn in this, in this area, but um, yeah, we, we're just starting to, to do that kind of research. Yeah, I mean, just having the start of the research has got to start informing some of the treatment decisions from the get-go. I mean, just even as we're talking through this, as my brain is is automatically churning in different directions, is that, you know, is, it, is this socialized? Is it biological? Is it, I mean, there's probably numerous components that, you know, we probably need to work through to try and figure out, you know, what best strategies are going to come through it. Do you see that with some family histories of autism or any sort mm -hmm. of other, um, I don't know, mental health sort of disorders that could be contributing to sleep uh, differences? Yeah, well, there's so much to that. I mean, family histories, you know, like if, if we often see just in the clinic, if a parent has a sleep problem, their kids are going to have more sleep problems. Um, that sometimes happens. Same thing with a lot of, you know, this is just sort of something we always look at. But one of the things that we were so interested to see is that we've been doing this study for over 17 years um, called IBIS. It's the Infant Brain Imaging Study. It's a network of universities across the U.S. And we recruit infants who have older autistic siblings. And so by definition, they have a family history of autism. And we track their development with brain imaging where babies fall asleep in the scanner and we look at their brain development over time and developmental assessments. And um, we didn't start off looking at sleep, but again, like sleep comes looking for you. If you're in the autism field, you're going to start realizing yeah, sleep is important here. Um, and what we found was that these babies who went on to develop autism, so they qualified for autism diagnosis at 24 months, Way back at six months, before anybody knew who was going to be autistic and who wasn't, the parents of the kids who ended up having autism were saying that their babies were having a harder time falling asleep. And also, the brain imaging showed that between six and 24 months of age, their brain development differed in that group of kids with sleep onset problems, babies who had these pretty mild, not something that you would go to the doctor and say, my kid won't fall asleep, but just sort of, um, you know, statistically clear. And so if this is replicated, it kind of suggests that sleep could be different as soon as, you know, like prior to the diagnosis of autism. And maybe these two things are really intertwined. That, um, 
And that kind of gets, I want to say one other thing, if I can, I'm sure you're thinking a million things, but this made me realize one of my um, points here is that we've talked a lot about the behavioral strategies, but there are people who do all the right things, get those behavioral strategies in place, and their kids still have a super hard time with sleep. And um, we definitely still think that these sleep hygiene um, strategies are important, but because for some kids it's so intertwined with just their biology and who they are, um, really getting some, you know, consultation with doctors and sometimes medicine and different things that, that you just have to do because some kids just have super difficult um, challenges. So I don't want to make it sound like, well, if you just, you know, do all these things, every single kid is going to um, be able to sleep really well because you know, if you're lucky, you will have that happen. Or if you're, mm -hmm. if you work really hard, but sometimes if you work really hard, it still doesn't happen. So yeah. And I mean, there's, there's never harm in trying to get additional input to guide on how you're going to be intervening. And, and you, you use the term sleep hygiene, and that's one that's used frequently, but it's, it goes into the idea that this isn't necessarily treatment. This is just you know, how to be able to maintain a good sleep pattern, good sleep habits. And this is for everyone. It's It just might be more done with more intent or yeah. see more of a benefit if somebody is struggling with this due to other things and autism might be one of them. But so what type of advice do you have for families that are trying to support their child through an autism routine? It's tough. I mean, this isn't an overnight treatment and they're going to be stressed through the process. Exactly. And it's hard because parents are also sleep deprived, which makes it harder to do everything. So I guess I would just say um, that parents should really get support for their efforts. And when I say support, I mean also through their physician, through their kids therapist, through their friends and family, anybody who can help them because parent implemented strategies are actually the most effective way to improve child sleep. But it is such a long-term project. All of us know that who've had kids, um, let alone autistic kids. And it's sort of two steps forward, one step back. Um, like when your child is sick, you have a vacation, there's a holiday. I mean, all of those normal changes affect sleep, but for autistic kids, it can sometimes really affect sleep. And then you feel like you're just, okay, I'm back on this, you know, having to, to try to, um, you know, help my kid again. But expect that. Um, and just know that you know by providing this sleep environment you're really doing one of the best things you can to help your kids healthy development absolutely and it, and i mean it's said a billion times in the in the community uh the autistic community but it takes a village i mean if we put all this every single one of these things on our shoulders and constantly strive for perfection, there's no way that any of us are gonna continue with the process. We're gonna quit, we're gonna give up. We need to have that support network. Um, what sort of resources do you, do you suggest for the families that are out there? Because even getting their foot in the door to start this process can be daunting. So where can they turn initially? Well, I really like the National Sleep Foundation's website. They're, they have so many resources on there, but um, some of them are, there's one called How Much Sleep Do You Really Need? I, that's on that website. I, I always tell parents about that. 
And then talking about what is sleep quality. So some of those things that we talked about that are components of good sleep. Um, the Vanderbilt toolkit um, for sleep problems and autism is a good one. They have a lot of different, you know, handouts and that kind of stuff. Um, at the Autism Center, UW Autism Center, we have a recorded webinar on sleep and autism. And as well as we have groups for parents that are online, um, sort of that where you can get into more detail about how to support your kids and have that support group of other parents also. So that's www.uwautism.org. And you know, there's there's lots of places out there. Um, but the, I would start with these. This is some of the stuff I always tell parents. Well, I, I appreciate those resources. And Annette, I appreciate the time that you gave us, but also the research that you're putting into really understanding and guiding the field on this issue. Um, I hope to have you back on again, because this is a subject that goes far deeper than what we were able to touch on today. But uh, just the, just giving us this time to start the dialogue, it's, it's much appreciated. Oh, yeah, it was it was great. I love talking about sleep and um, hope next time to have even more uh, info for you. So, yeah, that'd be great. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. Thank you.